now, for tonight, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we talked about this same exact passage of scripture last week. Last week, we focused in on how the Bible views poverty and how God wants us to see those who are in poverty. Today, we're going to pick that up by talking a little bit more about this lifestyle of faith that James talks about. So once again, I want to read to you from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. And so, like I said, last week we focused in on the concept of poverty. How does God see the poor? We talked about these two different words, that uh, two separate words in the Bible that are both translated exactly the same way in English. We just use the word poor. But in the original languages, they were two separate meanings. Um, one meant basically without, needy. Um, in other words, never had, never. It's hard for them to get anything. The other word meant oppressed or injustice. Um, and so we don't have time to dig back into that whole thing again this week. Basically, I think we can sum up all of last week's lesson uh, with Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9, where the Bible says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And so what I want to do now is talk about, okay, so that's how the Bible sees these people. This is how the Bible wants me to look at these, these folks. Um, and Janet was kind of getting at it in her communion thought. And I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's called uh, The International Bank of Bob. And uh, it's written by a guy, guy named uh, Bob Harris. And uh, basically, if you were here on Wednesday night for the uh, living on a dollar a day and then the microloan event that we did uh, looking using Kiva.org uh, to loan out in $25 increments, uh, loans to people in third world countries that are trying to lift their lives up. Bob basically, he, he, he researched the problem, he saw Kiva, he started donating money, and then he went around the world and visited all of these people that he had actually loaned money to in all these incredibly dangerous parts of the world. It's an amazing story, it's hysterical. He is, he is a, a, an incredibly entertaining writer. But he, what, what he says he noticed when he was sort of, uh, his, his job was, he was a Forbes uh, travel writer, and he had a trip around the world where he was staying in the most opulent hotels in the world. And then he would leave the hotel and he would see these people that were struggling so badly. And he called the problem um, the birth lottery. He said what he started to notice is if you were born in a certain place, or even if you was in the same place, if it was to a certain family, that kind of, <coughs> to a certain extent, dictated whether you're going to spend your life poor or whether you're going to spend your life not poor. And, you know, I mean, he pointed out that if you are incredibly, if you work incredibly hard and you are incredibly lucky and you have one of the things that society values, you know, intelligence or talent or you're good looking or, you know, you can sing or you can dance or you can act. If you have one of those things and you're 
working incredibly hard and you're incredibly lucky, you can pull yourself up out of those places of poverty. But for the most part, if you don't have anything that our society values, it's the birth lottery. You're either gonna be in a place where you have or you're gonna be in a place where you have not. And so knowing that, what does God want me to do? That's what I want to spend the rest of today on. And so the first thing that I guess I'd say is he wants me to respond to that with awareness. And again, this is basically what the whole last week's lesson was about, responding to poverty with awareness, just recognizing that there's a problem out there, that there are issues out there. And it's not a modern phenomenon. This has been going on for as long as there have been human beings on the face of the planet. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, the Bible says, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and you read the context of this particular verse, he's not talking about waking up and seeing that there's poverty around you. This is basically more about the kind of life you're living. This is more about integrity. Um, he's talking about people that are living their lives, doing things that they know they shouldn't do. And what happens when we do that is we sort of get pulled into or lulled into this sort of walking, sleepwalking, spiritual zombie type existence. Because we can't live with guilt at the forefront of our minds for very long. Um, it just, human beings can't do it. And so what we do is we suppress it. And what Paul is saying to these people in Ephesus is, wake up and take a look at the life you're living. Now, it's, again, it's not exactly about how we see those that are living in poverty, but I think that the principle holds. I think that when, that what God would want, would want from us is to wake up and look and see things the way that they are. And it kind of reminds me of this moment in Bruce Almighty, where Bruce finally comes face to face with God, and it takes him a little while to realize, well, to wake up to who he's talking to. Let's watch this. Just about everything there is to know. Everything you've ever said, or done, or thought about doing, right there in that file cabinet. Wow, a whole drawer just for me. Yeah. Mind if I take a look? Sure, like. That's how be good. Well, it was nice to meet you, God. 
Thank you for the Grand Canyon, and good luck with the apocalypse. Oh, and by the way, you suck! You know what would have been a little bit more impressive, though? If you hadn't used the cheesy file cabinet illusion. Anybody with a brainstem can tell that that drawer is being fed through the wall from the other side. All you have to do is find the crease right around here. There is a seam here. Or a hollow spot. Where? Through the drywall and concrete? Okay, that is a good one. That is a good one. Okay, how many fingers am I holding up? Now, Bruce, thou shalt not tempt the Lord. Hey, if you can't God. do it, man, that's cool. Three, two, four, nine, six, eight, one. Okay. How many now? Seven. Seriously, when I'm back into a corner, I'm like a wild animal. I don't want to hurt you, but I will out of instinct. You haven't won a fight since grade five, and that was against a girl. Yeah, but she was huge. She'd been held back. And the sun was in your eyes. Oh, there you go. You know, he said something in the middle of that that is kind of shocking here in church, where he tells God, you know, you suck. And that, I, I remember that, that really bothered me the first time I saw it. And then, I don't know how many of you guys know who Marvin Phillips is. He's one of my heroes. He's a preacher from the Midwest. And he was here, he used to come here a lot to Alaska. And he was here one night preaching along about that. And he said, he said, Bruce didn't say anything that David didn't say several times in the Psalms. It's like, as a matter of fact, if, if you translated those Psalms sort of into modern day vernacular, what Bruce said there would seem quite polite compared to what David sometimes would say to God. And uh, God is constantly trying to get us to wake up, but he will not continually try to get us to wake up. Um, and the reason is, is because we'll become desensitized to it. We'll get to where we just, we've heard it so much that we just are, aren't going to allow ourselves to be impacted by it anymore. And to a certain extent, that's what you've got to do with guilt if you're going to live with it. I don't know if you remember um, 80s and 90s especially, but even into the 2000s, there were, uh, on late night television, an incredible number of these, uh, these manipulative, I would call them manipulative commercials trying to get you to give money to a particular... Uh, charity that was trying to reach out to people in need. And you would see the most horrific images of children in, in poverty and in horrible situations so that, well, the idea was if, if, if you get to feel feeling bad enough, you'll think to yourself, maybe if I give some money, I'll feel better about myself. And so it worked really well for a while. But after a while, you'll notice they don't, they're not on nearly as much as they used to be because people became desensitized to them. And what they started doing is as soon as they saw the picture, they would just kind of put up a wall between themselves, their, their emotions, and the TV and say, you are not going to manipulate my emotions anymore. Same thing happens in churches, which is why we do the whole no pressure tactics, no manipulation, no, no guilt trips, you know. We're just going to share with you what the Bible says. And if, if you're going to feel guilty when you leave, it's going to be because of something that God said, not because I 
seized on a certain thing and started trying to grind you into the ground. Um, as a matter of fact, those, those TV shows, those commercials eventually kind of became, uh, in popular culture, sort of a joke. And I don't know if you remember many of them, but Sally Struthers, who played uh, Gloria in the 70s sitcom All in the Family, she was sort of the face of, of these commercials, especially early on. So much so that, she, that her name has entered into popular culture. You don't hear it too much anymore. But you used to hear people say things like, you know, well, I don't want to go all Sally Struthers on you or anything, but I need a ride to the airport. You know, stuff like that. And it's like tr trying to, you know, saying, I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to really pressure you into this. It's like, sometimes that's what will happen at church. It'll just get to where you're like, all right, enough. I'm not even going to listen anymore. But awareness is important. And God says, wake up. You know, to a lot of different areas, to the way that we're living our lives, to the way that we see different groups and, and people in our world, from those overseas to those right in front of us. So it starts with awareness. Second uh, point for tonight is that if I'm going to respond, I need to respond with Jesus, okay, with him, because this is something that he is already about. Back when I first started here in the late 90s, there was a really, really popular book called Experiencing God uh, by a guy named Blackaby. And his whole concept was, instead of saying, what should I do? What would I think would be a cool thing to do for God? And then starting to do it and then saying, okay, God, come and get behind me and let's do this. He said, instead, look for what God is already at work doing and then get on board with that. It's the difference between paddle surfing out on a calm lake and surfing, you know, in Australia and those great big waves that you see. It's like there's one, most of it's under your own power, and the other one is like you're just holding on for dear life trying to get through, right? When God is already at work doing something and you get involved with that, there's, it's like get ready because there's no telling what's going to happen. And when Jesus came to this earth, one of the things that he said his life was going to be about, he said this over and over and over again, was reaching out to the poor. And this was not a figurative way of, of speaking. It's really interesting. It's like I saw, I keep seeing these things on Facebook that are basically, you know, it's like, you see this all the time. It happens politically, it happens in religion, where one side is uh, constantly throwing barbs at the other side, and they go back and forth. And sometimes they can get kind of funny, you know? And again, this is generalizing the way that uh, one wing of religion or Christianity sees the Bible in the way that the other one does. But it is a generalization, and to a certain extent it's true. Uh, one side is like, you know, you can't really take the Bible terribly literally. You just sort of, you know, do what it says, and you let it impact your heart. And then, you know, and so at the far edge of this, uh, you know, extreme, that's sort of the idea. And at the far edge of this other extreme, it's like, it's all literal, it's all exactly true, it's all, you know, what it says, that's what it means, and, and I fall, you know, closer to this side than the other, but it's like some people will say, what do you mean it's not all literal? It's like, there's a place in the Bible that says, wake up, God. You know, David's saying it to God. Do you think God was really sleeping? No, he wasn't really sleeping, right? Uh, but it, anyways, all that to say, a friend of mine who's on this far left side posted a thing in Facebook that said, how can you folks on the other side take the Bible so literally to believe that there was actually a man named Noah who built a boat and put every animal on the face of the planet on it, but you 
you take that literally, but you think that when Jesus said, bless the poor, he was like speaking figuratively. <laughs> you, don't, you don't take that literally at all. And it's like, there does seem to be an issue there, right? And so when Jesus comes, he says, the poor, I'm here for the poor. I need you to be here for the poor. This is something I am serious about. This is something that I care deeply about. As a matter of fact, his first sermon on this earth, he is at um, his hometown synagogue, actually. And he had come back, and so they had asked him to speak at their worship service. And so what they would do in the first century is they would, they had, an average person couldn't own a scroll, a copy of, of the Bible. And so what you would do if you were a first century Jewish person to make sure you heard all of the Bible is you would show up to church, synagogue, every week. And they would start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and they'd start reading through. And when they got done, when they got to the end, they got to Malachi, the end of that, they would go back to Genesis chapter 1. It's like a lectionary schedule. And so on this particular day that Jesus shows up and they said, hey, why don't you speak to us today? Jesus didn't choose his passage of scripture. This is just a, a testament to the timing of God. Jesus gets up and this is what they are already set to read from Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus gets up, opens to the page in Isaiah, or the part of Isaiah on the scroll where they are already at, and he says, this is a messianic passage, something that describes what the Messiah would do once he got here. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and he sat down. And that's when the sermon would begin. Everybody's eyes were on him, Luke says. And Jesus preaches one of the shortest sermons in recorded history, and yet one of the most powerful. All he does is he says, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And there's this huge uproar, right? Not, not because they were bothered about the scripture, but they knew when he says, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled, they knew what he was saying about who he was. And they, they, they come unglued, right? Now, usually when we read that scripture, we think about how, how can those people have not seen who Jesus was? And how could they not? I guess today what I would say is when you read that scripture now, look at it and say, how could we have missed what he came to do, right? And I know that all of us who, are, who have considered themselves followers of Jesus, we care and we want to do something, but it's like, Get involved with what he's already doing, right? That he is already at work reaching out to these people. Now, I'm not here to tell you, here's where you should get on board or here's where you should get on board. But if I can get you to ask the question, where should I get on board? That, you asking that question of yourself, that'll change the world. It'll change your life, it'll change the world. And we've given you lots of different ideas. On the back of your lesson sheet, there's all kinds of resources, websites, books, documentaries you can watch at home, different ideas for right here locally where you can get on board with what God is already doing. Just look for something that, that speaks to your heart and then move in that direction. And then if that's not the right direction for you, God will make that pretty obvious pretty quickly and he will guide you into another direction. But get, we need to respond with him instead of just saying, hey, I got a great idea. I'm gonna go over here now, Lord, will you come over here with me? because I've got this really great idea. None of the miraculous stories in the Bible start out and then some human being had a really great idea and God said, I never thought of that. None, none of the great stories in the Bible start that way. 
They all start with God coming to people and saying, here's what I'm doing. Will you join me? And that leads to our third and final point for today, which is we need to respond with action. We need to respond with action. Um, instead of getting into the Galatians or the Ephesians 2 verse, I think I'm going to skip right to um, the Isaiah uh, part of this point. Uh, if, if you're interested in, and this is an important part of this story, of this scripture, um, of this lesson, uh, the whole playback between Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's idea of, you know, the concept of how faith and works show up with each other, and, and James's idea, the devotionals, we dive into this in depth this week. But I want to kind of skip over that tonight and get straight to this concept of action. Because that's what James is really talking about. What are you going to do? Are you going to do something? Isaiah tells this story in Isaiah chapter 6. He wrote one of the longest books in the Bible, right? He is one of the more important prophets that has ever lived in the history of the world. And he explains the day that he was called and that he accepted the call of God in his life. He was a priest, and he was in the temple, and he has this vision. He has this vision of the train of God, the, 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 the train of his robe fills the temple. And there are these, they're called seraphim. They're, uh, they're angelic beings. And they are, you know, it's like a lot of times, you know, cherubim and seraphim, the, you hear them in songs sometimes mentioned. They were angels that were sort of like uh, warriors or... Uh, as a matter of fact, in Near Eastern kings' uh, thrones, they would have their thrones, and uh, sort of at the, at the front of their throne, they would have these, these statues of seraphim that were to theoretically protect. They were the most horrific, awesome animals there, or beings that they could imagine. They were like, as long as a seraphim is protecting me, I don't have anything to worry about. In Isaiah's vision, the seraphim are flying around, around where God is, and they've got six wings, but they're only flying with two of them. Because with two of their six wings, they're covering up their heads like this. And with two of their wings, they're sort of in this fetal position. You know, I can't do it with both legs right now, but you get the picture, right? They're sort of hugging their legs like this. They're covering their heads like this. And they're flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The picture is God is so awesome that even the seraphim are awestruck in his presence. And Isaiah is there. And he sees this. And this is what God says. Isaiah says, I heard a voice say, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so God does. God sends Isaiah. Now, he didn't force Isaiah. I wonder sometimes when I look at this, how many other priests of God stepped into the temple at some point, had this exact same vision and said, well, there's this guy named Isaiah over here that you might want to consider because I don't know if I'm your guy. I don't know if I could, you know, it's like, I don't know for sure that that happened, but I know this, God wouldn't have forced Isaiah to do anything that Isaiah wasn't willing to do. And I tell that whole story just to say this one thing. God asks the same question today of every single one of us. He says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Every single one of us has to decide, am I going to say to him, I'll go? Now, I don't know what that will look like in your life if you, if you make that statement, right? Most of us will continue to live right where we are, do the same thing that we're already doing, and just change our focus, right? And God will, through 
human beings, quiet lives of greatness, where they get on board with what God is already at work doing. There's a song right now that's real popular on Caleb called God is on the Move. And, and in the in the, the, the chorus, they, he says, God is in the move, on the move in many mighty ways. But when you look at the things that he's talking about, when he says, here's, here's God on the move, they're small things, it, seemingly. But when human beings do these small things that God is asking them to do, it is a picture of God on the move and enough of us get involved. And so I want to watch the video of that song just to kind of get this in your brain as you walk out of here. Hopefully, well, let's watch. You'll see. From darkness to light Anytime temptation comes And someone stands to fight Anytime somebody lives to serve And not be served I know, I know, I know, I know in because that's really what it's like you know it's like people say to me sometimes well if I do this what what will happen <laughs> I have no idea nobody nobody has any clue what they're getting into when they do this right when I first got really serious about my faith I was like all right Lord I'm in I'll do whatever you want me to do except preach 
I will not preach. That is the one thing. I'll be a children's minister, youth minister. I'll be a minister to the elderly. I'll be, I don't care what you want me to do, but I just, and it's like God was just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Just take this next step, Ed, right? And how would I have ever imagined that, that the thing that I thought I would hate doing the most in this world was the thing that would bring me the most meaning and joy and satisfaction? I, I had no clue, and neither do you. You don't know what's going to bring you the most joy. God created you the way he created you. He designed you uniquely to be a partner with him in a certain place and way and time. And until you step into that, you are always going to say, is this really all that life is for? No, it's not. There's much more. All you have to do is say, all right, here I am. Send me. No idea what that's going to mean. No idea what that's going to look like. I'll give you a picture of what it looked like in one guy's life. And if you've ever been here, if you've been here for long, you've heard me tell this story. It is one of my absolute favorite stories. It's about a guy named Bob. And Bob was, uh, he worked in the pharmaceuticals industry in Washington, D.C. And he had a friend named Doug Coe, who was a lobbyist for pharmaceutical companies in Washington, D.C. But that was sort of, he considered that his side job. What he really was passionate about is he had started a ministry that reached out to Christians in government in Washington, D.C., and help them grapple with the question, how do I put my faith into practice in the midst of all of this mess? And so one day, Bob, who was in the pharmaceuticals industry, he had just become a Christian. He was trying to figure the whole thing out. He went to Doug's office, and he said, does prayer really work? And Doug's like, well, yeah, you know, it's not like a blank check or anything. You don't inform God what he's going to do, and then he does it, but... You know, you share with him, you entrust him with your deepest desires and the things you want, and then you trust him to do the best thing, the most loving thing for everybody involved. Bob said, wow, I'd love to see that in my life. And Doug said, okay, well then ask God to open doors. That was Doug's thing, open doors. Uh, ask God to open doors in some place in your life. And Bob was like, well, I don't know what to ask for. And Doug just said, well, choose something. And so... Bob looked up behind the desk in Doug's office was a picture, a, a map of the world. He said, okay, I'll ask God to open doors in Africa. And Doug was like, that's kind of a big area. Pick something smaller. So he said, okay, Uganda. And Doug was like, have you ever been to Uganda? Bob's like, no. He says, do you know anybody from Uganda? And Doug said, Bob said, no. He goes, well, then why Uganda? He goes, hey, you told me to pick something. I'm picking something. So Doug's like, all right, all right, all right. So here, I'll make you this deal then. He said, you pray and ask God to open doors in Uganda for you every day for 30 days. And if at the end of 30 days, if God hasn't clearly opened doors for you in Uganda, then I will give you, Bob, $500. And so Bob said, sounds great. All right, how can I lose? And so Bob started praying every day. Lord, open doors for me in Uganda. And a couple of weeks went by. I think like three weeks. Nothing was happening. And then, you know, Bob's starting to wonder if God's doing anything. And one day, Bob finds himself at this industry mixer, uh, sort of a, uh, a feast, you know, like a, a luncheon. And he sits down, and he's sitting next to a woman. He starts talking to her. She has an interesting accent. He says, where are you from? And she says, I'm from Uganda. <laughs> and he kind of sits up. He's like, wow, that's, this sounds like maybe it's an open door. So he starts asking her questions about what what she does and what she does there and what Uganda is like. He's asking her all these questions. She says, you are very interested in my country. You must have been to my country before. He's like, no. She's like, well, then you must know somebody from my country. He says, no. She goes, so then why are you so interested? He goes, well, 
there's this guy named Doug who's kind of paying me $500 to pray for your country. Now. So I'm just kind of following through. And she's like, you know. So anyways, pretty soon he realizes that what she's there for is that there are children in Uganda, and she runs the national orphanages. There are children in Uganda who are dying of preventable diseases that all, you know, in the West we just take a pill. But in Africa, these children are dying by the thousands every year. And she says, and every year your, your, your pharmaceutical companies throw away millions of dollars worth of these drugs because your FDA says they can't be sold once they get past a certain point. She goes, I'm here to try to talk them into sending those expired drugs to Uganda to see if they might help. So Bob's like, I know people in the pharmaceutical industry. I know people in the legal community. Maybe I can help. And so Bob gets involved, and sure enough, they start sending these expired drugs to Uganda, and like that, an entire generation of children's lives are saved. And everybody over in Uganda, they start interviewing this woman who runs the place, and she keeps talking about this guy named Bob. So one day, Bob gets a phone call from her, and she says, Bob, you are front page news over in our entire country. You are the hero of the moment. We want to throw a big party and have you as the guest of honor. Will you come? He's like, Sounds like another open door. So he steps through that open door. He goes to Uganda. While he's at this big, huge party, he meets the president of Uganda, who's not a nice guy, but who needs some, some good PR in his life. And so he kind of latches on to Bob. He's like, Bob, come on a tour of my country tomorrow. I will show you everything. And so Bob's like, sounds like another open door, even though he's a little bit nervous being in the same car with this guy, right? But he gets in the car the next day, they're driving around, they see all this stuff. At one point, they drive by what looks to Bob like a stockyard for animals, and there's all these people there. And Bob says, what's the deal with those people? And the president says, oh, those are political prisoners. And Bob says, so you mean those people are in jail just because they disagree with your policies? And the president says, yeah. And Bob says, well, that's not cool, you should let them go. And that's a quote, okay, I'll just tell you, that's a quote. And the president just looks at him like, and Bob wonders if he's overstepped, but the president then kind of says, Bob, I, you know, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know what to think of you. And they go on and never say another word about it. Bob goes home. About a week later, Bob gets a call from the State Department of the United States. He said, is this Bob? And Bob's like, yeah, this is Bob. And the guy from the State Department says, were you in Uganda recently, Bob? And Bob says, yeah. He says, did you meet the president of Uganda while you were there? And Bob says, yeah. And did you see some, say something to him about the political prisoners in Uganda while you were there, Bob? Bob says, yeah, I told him that wasn't cool. He should let them go. Why? What is all this about? The guy says, well, Bob, we've been working for their release for 10 years, and today he let them go. And he says, and we asked him why, and he said, well, there's this guy named Bob. <laughs> said, you know, and so I released him. I got all this great, you know, all this great pu public relations. And like that, what happened is it turned out that these people that were in prison were in prison because of their faith in a man named Jesus Christ. And they were released and went home to their communities where all of these thousands of children who before would have died are suddenly growing up and creating a new generation of Ugandans who when people say, why am I alive? They say, well, there was this guy named Bob, who a man named Jesus Christ used to bring us drugs that allowed us to live. And there's suddenly all of these mature followers of Jesus that are creating this, this, this wave of Christians there. It totally changed the course of that country's history. To this day, Christianity is a huge part of Uganda's government. 
Not just, not just everyday life, but it, it has changed everything there. And they all point back to this one guy named Bob, who now, if you ask him, he'll say, I didn't do anything. I just walked through open doors. All that to say to this to you. I don't know what God's going to ask you to do. If you say, here I am, send me, Lord, and he starts opening doors, I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know what that's going to mean in your life. But if you are interested and you start praying and say, Lord, show me where to go. Here I am, send me, open doors, and then you know, pick whatever you want to ask him to open doors. If after 30 days of praying that God would open doors, if God hasn't clearly opened doors for you in whatever area you're praying for, I will give you five dollars. Because <laughs> I'm just a preacher, right? I'm not some big time Washington lobbyist. But I'm serious. If all of us go home tonight and say, Lord, here I am, send me. And then you start walking through the doors that God opens because of that, there's going to be a different place. Your life is going to be different. The world is going to be different. So if that's something you're willing to do, then let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and right here where we sit, for those who have said, the, who have said those words to you, Lord, here I am, send me. And for those who will, maybe after thinking about it, say those words, then Lord, we say, show us where to go. Make our eyes focused and clear so that we can see exactly what it is that you are calling us to do. Lead us into the life that you designed us to live, to be an impact on the people of this world that you care so much about, that you want us to care about. Show us what that's going to look like in our little lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.